0: This is Rabbi Josh Uder of the Stanton Street Shul. Thank you for downloading this class podcast. These classes are provided free of charge through the generosity of the Stanton Street Shul community and supporters like you. If you do enjoy them, please consider making a donation to our Synagogue's building fund on our website's Shop Donate page at www.stantonstshul.com. Good morning, everyone. It is Sunday, November 3rd. Good First Rosh Kodesh Kislev, uh, 2013. Today's topic in the penultimate class that we have in the halachic process, next week we'll do a wrap-up and sort of summary, uh, is titled Rabbi David Hartman and Religious Individualism. And by the end, you might even wonder why this would count as a halachic process at all when we get through it. But it's very important for several reasons. One, methodologically, it's very easy, I think, to confuse him with others, and particularly Rabbi Abi Weiss, who we saw last week. And I say this because I did so myself. We're going to find similar patterns of quoting one particular passage in the Bible, holding that up as an exemplar, and then creating sort of a approach to Jewish law based on that one source. All right, Whereas... Avi Weiss focused on, or I shouldn't say focus on, for Avi Weiss, the halacha came on, uh, in the form of the, um, I think his words were the exceptional halachic personality. David Hartman does something different by focusing on the individual. And there's a logical component to that too. One of the questions that we've had as a recurring theme is the question of authority. Who gets to decide and who gets to make those determinations? Now, very few people have actually given you objective definitions of this person counts and this person doesn't. Rambam kind of did, going back to the Gemara, based on his view of positivism, where you have like the legislated court and you have to be part of that body. After that, when you don't have a court, nit pashet bechal Israel, you follow in his words, misha daat noteh, whomever happens to convince you the best. But that assumes that you have you know, a system with which that you're working and an objective criteria by which you can evaluate who's really giving you the better argument, all right? Where, I will summarize that point briefly, um, because these were like recurring things that we've been talking about for a while. In order to have a question of halakhic process, it is inexorably tied to the question of authority. When I say you ought to do something or you have to do something, well, I'm assuming I've got a degree of authority. If I say you have to do something because someone else says so, then I am implicitly saying that other person is of sufficient authority that you have to do what he says. And what we spent time developing, especially in the earlier weeks of the class, is tracing that all the way up to God. Because if the whole point of doing Halakha and mitzvot is ultimately fulfilling divine will, well then, how do you know what various rabbis are saying is in fact what the divine will is, unless you can sort of trace and justify that authority in some way? So we spent several classes discussing the rabbinic period and how did the Talmud justify their own authority and what were their own rules, and some deviations that came up in the post-Talmudic period, which is a really long time leading all the way up to today. Um, so, uh, right. Got it. Okay. Yes. So with Hartman, there's a focus more on the individual. And this gets to, uh, I'm glad I can actually use this for uh, uh, practically or semi-practically. In discrete Structures, which was a class I had as a computer science major in Yeshiva University, there's Professor Arnold Lebo, who taught a thing on proof by induction, which goes like this if you don't have an objective criteria for who's going to be that authority, well then any person can fit into that authority. And if any person can fit into that authority, then every person can fit is that authority. So you're like, if n is true and n plus one is true, then you keep adding plus like plus ones until the entire world is sort of encompassed. So that's one way of looking at this, of saying, well, since we don't have really objective criteria, it de facto has to go back on the individual. But there's something else at play here that I think is very important to understand Hartman's approach, such that before we even get to his own writings, to understand a little bit about not just sociology of religion, but the process of secularization. Uh, The idea of secularization uh, is somewhat complicated. I kind of did a botched thesis in Chicago about it was one of the reasons why I gave up on sociology of religion altogether. For That is a whole separate rant, which at some point I need to write up. Um, but the short, super short version is this. According to Max Weber, who originated the secularization theory, as, well, I shouldn't say originated, I'm sorry, I, I apologize for being a little precise here. A lot of people, I should say, go back to Weber, says as we move further in modernity and we have science and other explanations that can answer the questions of religion, people are going to get less and less religious. And he portrayed it as a nice little linear regression straight line. As time goes on, religion's going to decrease. That obviously hasn't happened, but people started focusing on religion differently and did notice shifts in religious power and religious authority. One of the notable changes...
1: Did not notice.
0: No, did. The sociologists did. In particular, one of the phenomena they noticed is a trend towards either individuation or individualism, a focus away from the official party line of what the religion, meaning the higher-ups, said and believed, as opposed to what people on the ground actually did and how they processed their religious teachings. So I'm only going to cite two sources here. The first I have is someone named Thomas Lookman from a book, uh, almost like a monograph, a really long essay titled The Invisible Religion. George, start us off.
2: You may say in some that the individualization of consciousness and consciousness occur occurs for historical individuals in a in turn nationalization
0: Internalization. Internalization. Yeah, not internationalization. I, I can't see. Sorry,
2: right. <laughs> of uh, an already constructed worldview, rather than in an original creation of the worldview, the worldview with its uh, underlying hierarchy of significance becomes an individual system of relevance that is superimposed on the stream of consciousness. It is a con- constitutive.
0: Consti- yeah, constitutive. Yeah.
2: Element of personal identity. The personal identity of a historical individual is, thus, the subjective expression of the objective significance of a historical worldview. Earlier, we defined the worldview as a universal social form of religion. Correspondingly, we may not define personal identity as as a universal form of individual religiosity.
0: In plain English, as I understand it, because academics tend to write a little obtusely, (sighs) Um basically someone gets up from let's say the official religious institution, let's say the church, and says, Here is the church teaching. A pastor, a priest gets up, gives a sermon. That could be the official church teaching. But that's going to be interpreted and internalized in as many number of ways as you have people sitting in the congregation. So from a practical perspective, while religion might, even if you have a top-down religion, it can only be processed by the individual on an individual level. All right, continue.
2: The discrepancy between the subjective autonomy of the individual in modern society and the objective autonomy of a primary institution strikes us as critical. The primary social institutions have <clears throat> emigrated from the sacred cosmos Their functional rationality is not part of the system that could be of ultimate significance to the individual in in this society.
0: So here, when you've got like a church, they have sort of this narrative about sacred cosmos and how the world came into being and all that. But your personal experience isn't really like that. You're sort of accepting this myth, and I'm using that in a technical term, that is bestowed upon you by the higher-ups in charge, but that's not actually... Your life, your life is your life, and it still has to play into your own real-world experiences. So that you know, you, you may like on one hand you have the um, the objective autonomy of the primary institution is what they do, and then there's the subject of one of what you as an individual of how you come to terms and how you integrate whatever this big meaning is that the church is trying to teach.
2: The modern sacred cosmos legitimates the retreat of the individual into the private sphere and sanctifies his his subjective autonomy. Thus, this inevitably reinforces the autonomous function of our primary institutions by bestowing a sacred quality upon the increasing subjectivity of human existence, it supports not only the secularization, but also what we call the dehumanization of social structure.
0: By focusing on that individual, I mean, there's a reason why I call this the individual religion, because he's talking about the religions that you don't really see on a day to day basis. When you say that your personal experience is intrinsically sacred, right? no matter what that happens to be, he's saying it not only supports secularization of the social structure, and again, that's one of the forms that people will find, where the source now becomes to your individual part, but he calls the dehumanization, in a sense that the social structure is not so much about the people themselves, because each person is sort of doing their own little thing. might be a bit of a heady topic. Um, Corinne, if you could read the next paragraph, I think this anecdote really encapsulates in plainer English what he's trying to say. This is from Robert Bella's book, Habits of the Heart.
3: Today, religion in America is as private and diverse as New England colonial region was public and unified. Uh, One person we interviewed has actually named her religion. She calls it her faith after herself. This suggests the local possibility of over 220 million American religions, one for each of us. Sheila Larson is a young nurse who has received a good deal of therapy and who described her faith as Sheilaism. I believe in God. I'm not a religious fanatic. I can't remember the last time I went to church. My faith has carried me a long way. It's Sheilaism, just my own little voice. Sheila's faith has some tenets beyond belief in God, though not man. In defining my own Sheilaism, she said, it's just try to love yourself and be gentle with yourself. You know, I guess, take care of each other. I think he would want us to take care of each other. Like many others, Sheila would be willing to endorse a few more specific... Few Not
0: a few more specific injunctions. More specific. So here you have a nice little encapsulation of Sheilaism, where Sheila pretty much creates her own religion. So there I know what Judaism is. is, what Judy's religion Very good! You see there? Very nice. <laughs> Do you Judy, Judaism, Judaism is? is the religion of Judy. <laughs> yes. Um, so here you have a, like a more concrete example of how something like this manifests. People, I mean, I you know, whatever her religious background was, people will take a lot of teachings and sort of comprise their own system that works for them. Right? This is the height of individuation or individualism. Yeah.
1: Uh, I've
4: been thinking lately about how the expression uh, everyone does what's right in his own eyes
0: has changed
4: from negative to positive.
0: Yeah, we're going to, that's, that's what we're going to go through. That, that'll be a, recar- yeah, we'll get there. Um, would you like to read source number three for us? You can pass if you'd like. Um, so now that we have the basics here about the sociology of individualism, it's important to also note that what Hartman is doing, or at least will be doing in terms of his description, is taking this phenomena that sociologists might see as secular and basically infuse that with religious significance. Instead of saying that this is a compromise, in a way he's going to argue that this sort of individualism or individuation is itself the religious ideal. And with that introduction, this is from his book, A Living Covenant.
1: The unfolding of our rational and ethical capacities is implicit in the notion of a covenantal relationship with God. If covenantal mutuality is to be taken seriously, one's ethical and rational capacities must never be crushed, as Soloveitchik demands when he makes the Akedah the supreme paradigm of religious authenticity. In asking the Judaic community to interpret and expand the norms of Judaism to cover all aspects of life, the God of the covenant invites that community to trust its own ability to make rational and moral judgments.
0: So to explain the distinction here... Soloveitchik, at least as he's quoting him, I mean, he says he was a student of Soloveitchik, but he acknowledges that he's deviating, which is very different. Meaning, it's not like, oh, I was a student of Soloveitchik and he agrees with me, like we saw last week. He's saying, well, at other points he said, yes, I said with him, but no, I, I disagree. He's quoting Soloveitchik as saying the Akedah is the prime example of religious worship, because that's when you negate your whatever personal sense of morals or ethics in the service of God. And he take, Hartman takes issue with that, right? So not in the same way. You have Sullivatic like taking one example in the Bible, saying this is it, this is your primary example, and he he's going to, uh, Hartman's going to show other examples. But his argument is of a covenant, which is pretty much a deal, right, between two parties, means that we have a chilek, we have a portion in the exchange as well. All right, continue. Yeah.
1: For religious individuals shaped by the tradition of the covenant, ethics are not acted out in a spirit of human isolation. Such people are always acting in response to and within a relationship with their God. The point of departure for their perception of reality is always covenantal. And they always view themselves in the context of being in the presence of God. They do not live in Kant's ethical universe because they do not perceive human beings as totally self legislating individuals. They can never understand an ought in relation in isolation from the presence of God. The her, her, heritonomous quality of revelation be arises not from a need to compensate for the human failure of reason to provide justifiable reasons that would substantiate ethical obligations. I'm going to begin that sentence again because I'm completely lost. Okay. Heteronomous.
0: H- heteronomous. That's my typo. Yeah, they, they come up. <laughs> heteronomous quality of revelation, meaning of many different types and many different variations.
1: Quality of revelation arises not from a need to compensate for the human failure of reason to provide justifiable reasons that would substantiate ethical obligations, but rather from the way covenantal ethical thinking reflects the building of a common life between community and
0: God. Plain English, people are varied, right? A lot of different types of people, a lot of different approaches, the fact that you have various, as he puts it, quality of revelation isn't because we as human people lack the ability to reason, but because human people are different. All right? And when you're going to have different human people who are trying to have fulfilled their relationship with a covenant of God, that relationship is by necessity going to have to be in flux. Yes?
5: Isn't he also saying, on some level... That if you don't understand it, it's not valid, or it's
0: uh, not quite. Uh, if he's, he, you know, but but
5: he's within spitting distance. Of
0: not not exactly, and I, I understand like why you why you would say that just from this passage. In the whole paragraphs that we quote of Hartman, he really explains the parameters. Of the limits of uh, religious individuation and that sort of thing. So give it a little bit of time and things I th- hopefully will become a little more clear. All right? And take the last paragraph in here.
1: Yeah, yeah. The Torah provides for a way of life and everything that is part of the individual and communal existence is absorbed in the, into the framework of halacha. Covenantal spirituality contains both the devotional passion of prayer and the command of a God who seeks to be sanctified in the midst of a community. Accordingly, the ethical and moral concerns found in the Torah are not an imperfect preliminary stage to be overcome In the act of unconditional surrender in the life of worship. Nor may our appreciation of what is considered just and fair ever be undermined through appeals to the absolute authority of halacha.
0: Yeah, that typo there is not mine, Uh, where it's actually written halacha, which I thought was within you. Anyway, yeah.
5: Nor may our appreciation of what's considered just and fair ever be undermined? Yep. Our, our, so our, so basically, our understanding is more important than the absolute authority of Halatha.
0: You know, yes and no. Um, I, I can, let me try to explain this now, and I think he's going to explain it further. He doesn't mean that, I mean, he mentioned earlier, they don't live in an ethical universe because they don't perceive human beings as being totally self-legislating individuals. According to my understanding of Hartman, it's not entirely that people just do what they want, but rather doing so through the framework of this covenantal relationship and engaging with God. And that there's something that you bring to the table in trying to understand standing godliness, such that just to say your ethical intuition is incorrect because it contradicts halacha for him is insufficient. Remember, this is just source one. There's a lot more here.
5: Still, though... He invokes Rabbi Soloveitchik as having... To
0: argue with him.
5: Yeah, I understand that he invokes it as saying that Rabbi Soloveitchik was the one who demanded that uh, it was the supreme paradigm of religious authenticity.
0: To sacrifice, abnegate your moral intuition in favor of what God demands.
5: Right, but we have a lot of things like that in Judaism. Don't eat pork doesn't say why. Well... It's, It's just a. it's an act of faith. And therefore... And therefore, you don't have to understand everything in this religion.
0: So keep in mind, we've only did one excerpt of one of his several books. Yeah, we got more here. All right, and don't forget, if there's anything that's insufficient or people want to read more, I have the full bibliography at the end of the source sheet. He gets, you know, he does discuss a bunch of these things. All right, yeah.
1: Um, I, am oh, sorry. I
2: said to the gentleman, that's a good point. Okay. I just want um you to- way back. I- uh, in the Torah it says, do not withhold your hand from your brother. Yeah. Meaning, give him money when he needs it. Mm-hmm. And Hillel comes up with recognizing that people are not really going to follow that because they have their own individual feelings about things. And so he creates the prose book. Yep. So he understands both what is right and what is necessary to gain that.
0: Yep. And in one of his books, Hartman writes extensively about that as the prime example. Uh, and he also, how to put this? He makes some really poor, weak, logical jumps from saying, using that example of Hillel to say that's emblematic of the entire Tanaitic tradition, whereas the Amoraim went back and said, oh, here's how it works halachically. And he tried showing us that there, there's some sort of dichotomy between the Tanaim and the Amorayim that is just flat-out wrong and sloppy. So a lot comes down to how you interpret this stuff. And I'll give one Tanitic source at the end, and if you remind me, I'll cite in another Tanitic source that completely shoots his theory out. At any rate, right now, we're trying to lay the groundwork of his thought, right? That it's uh, when you have a covenantal relationship, it kind of goes two ways. And the ethical intuitions of an individual do play a role in it, at least assuming they're approaching their ethical um, positions from this framework of having a relationship with God and not just doing what happens you see fit. Dana, could you take next source? This is from his book, Defender to Critic.
5: The covenant is not only about the empowerment of human beings, it is also about the withdrawal of God's control. I mean,
0: by definition of having a covenant, it's not all about God. God left stuff for us to do.
5: Mm. God's shift from the model of a singular will to the model of a covenant reflects a critical change in the way God relates to the world. God initiates creation, revelation, and the movement of history. Then God calls upon human beings to complete the task and take responsibility for the areas of life once within God's purview. God presents us with the normative founding moment for building an ordered moral world and then steps back so that we can step forward and act that can be understood as a manifestation of divine love.
0: Yeah, not unlike what we saw last week about Rabbi Athi Weiss and the whole thing with halacha being a uh, sort of continuous creative act type thing, or going back to that sense of creation, sort of continuing God's ultimate plan. Continue?
2: is this like a God. watch make a view of the world that God created and that all these things? Now he stands back and watches what's going
5: on?
0: Um what we do with it? Partially. Continue.
5: God's presence in the world becomes conditional in a deep sense on human beings sharing the burden of history. Instead of a total welfare state, God decides to allow people to become responsible for themselves and for each other on a volunteer basis. Covenantal theology is defined by humanity's assumption of moral responsibility, encapsulated in the following famous passage in Deuteronomy. I have put before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life.
0: Next, he continues. vacharta
5: you must choose, is the a priori commandment, the mitzvah that, in a sense, informs all others. Choosing life is the precondition upon which rests the observance of all other commandments.
0: Right, so here you have another example of, hey, this mitzvah is more important than anything else. Because you got to be alive. Well, there is that, but like in terms of like defining the whole religious ethos based on one mitzvah. Yeah.
5: In asserting the most basic value of human life and dignity, Uvacharta reflects the first stage of the covenantal relationship in which we are responsible for implementing the mitzvah.
0: So, based on your example of the watchmaker, like, you know, God creates the world and then sits back and watch. The way I would interpret Hartman, this is my own sense, isn't that God is passive but God is actively withdrawing in order to allow us to do stuff. It's part of that partnership, all right. Think of it as uh, shavat as being an active word. You know, you're actively stepping away.
5: So divine providence is a non-issue for him.
0: Uh, I, I don't know in detail. I look. Uh, Hartman was a lot more proficient than, say, Avi Weiss. So I don't know how he would answer every single one of these questions. But I do know he's placing a lot more of the onus and responsibility on humans. Well... Or look at it this way.
5: We knew that.
0: Well, well I, that's kind of how I introduced it, so yes. But this itself isn't a huge theological problem. I mean, the big theological problem, which we've spoken about many times in the shul, is divine providence versus free will. Something goes wrong in the world, it, like... Two people, however you know, many, but like two planes crash in the World Trade Center, right? Was that God doing it or was that people the act of their free will who decided to do it? You don't really know, right? But each one, whatever opinion you take is going to be certainly valid because we believe in both. And they happen to be mutually contradictory because the more you emphasize free will, the more you're taking away divine providence. The more you emphasize divine providence, the more you're taking away free will. Wow. There's no real answer to that question. Um, but we're going to try to at least focus on the halachic element, by which I mean the practical. How does this translate into what do you as a Jew and a human do yeah. and how you're supposed to live?
5: He hasn't he doesn't seem to have gotten there yet
0: again. He wrote several books. Yeah. I'm quoting excerpts from books. Okay. Right? There's a lot that he's written. And again, you are more than free to read a whole lot more of this to get a fuller picture and to also speak to some of his students who might be able to also okay. give you a fuller picture. I took out the stuff I thought would be most relevant to our discussion on the halachic side of things.
2: Where did Hartman
0: teach? Um, most of the time at the Hartman Institute.
5: <laughs> <Okay>.
0: Yes. <laughs> it was named after his father. Go ahead.
5: The covenant experience truly emerges when the people of Israel turn the written word into an open-ended creative word. The covenant, which is predicated on human responsibility, is strengthened when the Jewish people feel adequate to expand the implications of the spiritual guidance that began at Sinai. Revelation at Sinai then became a derech, a pointing, a direction, and not the final consummation of the word of God. Cognitive dignity and intellectual adequacy transform the individual from a passive recipient into an active shaper of the future direction of Torah.
0: Yeah, and take this last one. It's a final one.
5: We are responsible not only for maintaining our own moral conscience and for taking on the role of interpreting God's law for our time and place we are also responsible for stepping outside of ourselves and outside of the borders of our own reality to take an active role in shaping our destiny.
0: Right. So uh, effectively, it's not you know, it, the, the issue of morals such as the thing of Tzalem is something that we as human beings have a responsibility to do as individuals. Right. So it's not that you're um, submitting to halakha or you know, even the uh, exceptional halachic personality, it's you have to do your job. You have to do your role in terms of actualizing whatever you think God's intention really is and is supposed to be. You are an active partner in this covenant, as opposed to blind obedience and subservience.
2: Then you're picking the halachos you want to observe.
0: We'll get to uh, he. We'll discuss a little bit later about how he describes challenges and some of the issues. Shlomis, take the next paragraph, please.
6: Avram's moral confrontation with God at Saddam is a central paradigm for my physilo- philosophy. Philosophy of Judaism. The legitimacy of Avram's claims and God's fundamental acceptance of these claims clearly illustrates for me the precept that our relationship with God must empower us to take responsibility for and trust our innermost convictions. The most important lesson we learned from our forefather Avram is the legitimacy of personal moral intuition.
0: Alright, people remember what he's talking about here? Correct? Uh, me and the
2: strangers to his tent?
0: No, Corin?
3: No, when he says,
0: you, would you destroy the city the Yeah. haftis imrashah. Are you two going to destroy the righteous with the wicked? So... Again, taking one biblical narrative as, uh, as he puts the central paradigm for his philosophy, right? Well, if Abraham can argue with God and Abraham, and that's his, like his argument is, well, since Abraham could argue with God, then we know that there's a legitimacy to personal moral intuition. Of course, ignoring the fact that God argued with Abraham back and at some point Abraham did acquiesce.
4: There's more than that. Abraham didn't learn his own lesson when it came later to the Al-Qaeda.
0: Well, yes, there is that too. Um, unless he's going to assume that Abraham really had no moral objection to sacrificing his son. Yes. I mean, you, uh, you're, you're seeing the problems when you base a theology on your interpretation of one particular source. We saw that last week with Salamelo Kim Avi Weiss. And the problems with basing it so focused on the fact that Abraham argues with God... In one, and without ignoring the consequences or the description of how it leads you to other problems as well. That aside, let's move on. Yet, taking seriously, here's where we get to the question about the conflicts. Shalames, continue.
6: Yet, taking seriously, this intuition can at times bring us into direct conflict with halacha. Often, we find ourselves faced with two conflicting impulses: the impulse on mm-hmm. the other, on one hand, rooted in our ethical yeah. conscience to innovate, and the impulse, on the other hand, uh, rather in our need to be part of a viable community to maintain the rhythm of tradition as it has been practiced throughout the generations.
0: All right, very simple question. What do you do when your personal moral intuition contradicts halacha? Fair question, right? That's what, you know, we're getting to the money, money stuff here. Go on.
6: What do we do when we find ourselves presented with these simultaneously legitimate and contradictory impulses? Over the years, I have found myself struggling with the question of whether Judaism provides a way to express a a person's moral convictions or whether it deems uh, those very convictions illegitimate. It has never been my aim to undermine the semblance of halakhic authority. My goal is to see whether there is room within the halakhic structure to reconcile my personal moral instincts with imperatives of the tradition.
0: So his approach is simply, don't look for conflict. See if there's a way to reconcile them without breaking halakha. Yeah. Um, Keep in mind, he has another paragraph. All right, continue, Shalamus. Hold off until we at least finish his thought.
6: Okay. I maintain that there are two... Uh, perspectives from which to approach this question from the perspective of my obligation as an individual and from the pers- perspective of my obligation as a member of the jewish collective and in- invested in the community of this way of life as an individual my job is to trust my inner moral voice as a member of the community my task is to see whether there is room in the, cano- in the Can. canon to arrive at an, an alternative in- interpretation As an individual, my instinct is to categorically reject halakhic rulings that are uh, predicated on a view of humanity that foregrounds the moral limitations instead of their moral potential. Yet, as a member of the Jewish collective and someone deeply committed to the Jewish people's Continuity. continuity, I have felt obligated to delve deep into our text, to study, to prove, and to struggle, in the effort to demonstrate that the tradition does make room for the moral outrage outrage we experience. And the way it makes room is by using methods of interpretation to neutralize morally problematic texts.
0: Plain English, you find something in the Torah that you disagree with on moral or ethical grounds, you reinterpret the Torah to make it fit. Yes?
5: How How about three words he hasn't really come near? Hmm. Ask a rabbi. Hello?
0: Well, again, this is a focus on the individuation part. When, on a practical level, the way people experience religion is very personal. And that, there are two ways of reading this. You can either say that he is giving you a discussion, like this is what he thinks is the ideal, or maybe he's responding to the social realities that are already prevalent Meaning, if this is the way people are already asking, or I, I should say, these are the way people are already following and observing the religion of Judaism, well, here's a way of sanctifying what people are already doing. But regardless of, quote, asking a rabbi, I've got news for you. Rabbis say things that people find morally offensive. We discussed that this past Shabbos with Rabbi Avadi Yosef. Especially later on in life. He said a lot of things people find morally offensive. Yes. But Hartman's... He's Hartman a specific still, example. But you said. said ask a rabbi. Yeah. Rabbi Uvadi Yosef was one of the most well-respected halachas of his generation. And he said some morally offensive things to oh, a lot of people. About $10 million
5: dollars, Rabbi Hartman would never talk to Avadi Yosef. But he also... I
0: sp- don't... Listen. Don't try to... There's only so much willing to like read into it. But again, the main point here is... Yeah. The way that you resolve conflict yeah. is you reinterpret text. ...to fit your moral voice. That's a very important point. Do you get that?
5: Yeah, but he says something here... ...that seems to contradict all of it. Which is? It has never been my aim to undermine the semblance of a halachic authority.
0: He says within the halachic structure. Now, since halacha does have... ...a long tradition of interpretation... ...and reinterpretation... ...the application is simple. Since people can interpret law... Well, you interpret law, or at least interpret the law in a way that best suits your personal ethical judgment. you and then you.
2: Um, our individual moral voice is shaped by being immersed in the Jewish community. Mm-hmm. So it's not independent. Uh, we have in approach, we have an, an approach to avoidance kind of uh, approach to the philosophy of moral philosophy within Judaism. Mm-hmm. So that's shaping us to begin with,
0: and therefore, so
2: th- therefore, we're not outside. The so you're community.
0: saying that there's no pure read. I mean, yeah, that that's an argument that people don't like using. Consi- in terms of to what extent are you influenced by your environment? Yeah, I that that can certainly happen. But, but if there, regardless of that,
2: my Judaism isn't genetic.
0: No, but it, but regardless, you're raised in a certain way in a certain environment that is going to shape your moral and ethical approach to life, right? Here, too, he would argue, well, you know, that there's going to be room for that because if you're raised in a certain way of what's right or what's wrong, that's going to stick with you a lot more, such that, uh, let, let's say family life, right? However you were raised, whatever morals or values that your parents instilled in you. If you go to a yeshiva and they start telling you things that contradict it, that's going to have a really strong dissonance, no matter what your family's taught. So this is a way of reconciling that, in the most general level, that could be applicable to almost anyone. Yeah.
4: Well, I'll pass on most of it, but I'm thinking. I mean, what he's describing here, wouldn't it? Uh, wouldn't an example of that be what the rabbis did with the rebellious son?
0: What do you mean? Uh,
4: they 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 couldn't stomach uh, stoning a kid who didn't listen to his parents. Mm-hmm. So they reinterpreted the text because it says both parents have to come. Yeah. So they say, well, they both have to talk at the
0: same volume of voice. Yeah, uh, there, and, there's, and, he actually, Hartman does discuss that in one of his places because, so to explain, the rebellious uh, son, the uh, Sorer Umoret, right? Uh, someone, I mean, theologically it can be difficult because you wind up killing him because of what he's going to do at the end. Right, It's like you see a bad kid in elementary school. Oh, he's going to turn out bad. Better get rid of him now and save everyone the trouble. You can see like why people find that ethically problematic. So the sages say one opinion is, well, it never happened and it never will happen because there are a whole bunch of rabbinic legal exegesis that all need to be required in order for it to happen such that it's nearly impossible. There is another opinion that says not only did it happen, but I sat on his grave. Um, and Hartman actually has issue, well, what about the sympathy for the kid and all that? The one problem with that approach is, when you have all that reinterpretation, you're sort of imposing on the sages their motivations for it. Was it really because they felt a moral obligation to mitigate it from existence? or perhaps this was actually how they read the text? right? You're sort of unless you have an explicit statement, or some record that says, this is unjust, and therefore we must change it, you're making a fairly large assumption in terms of why, of their motivations for why they did this certain thing. Maybe you're right, but it's still conjecture. And I find it a little bit risky to base so much, uh, or at least to extrapolate so much, based on a conjecture that could have other possibilities. Okay. Next up, we have a book called The God Who Hates Lies, which was actually co-authored by Rabbi Charlie Buchholz, who some of you may remember as the former rabbi of the uh, Sixth Street Community Synagogue. Uh, He was the rabbi there when I first came to Stanton Street. Um, And in this book, Hartman is, I think, a lot more let's use the term emphatic. And he holds back a lot less in terms of his emotions uh, in his writing. So, start us off.
4: Another area in which tradition often comes into conflict with ethical intuition concerns the role and treatment of women within traditional Jewish frameworks. To take one example that is literally close to home, several years ago my daughter Tova helped to found an egalitarian Orthodox synagogue in Jerusalem dedicated to infusing the prayer community with a feminist ethos. When asked by an ultra-Orthodox nephew how I justify my presence at my daughter's shul, I told him... I feel the Shekhinah, i.e. the feminine emanation of God's presence, singing with women's voices. voices. My nephew responded in kind, answering that if there is one thing he is certain of, it is that the Shekhinah is not in that place. This is
0: a fascinating piece for a couple of reasons. What's his justification? He feels the Shekhinah. Therefore, it's fine. But someone else, well, there's one thing I know, the Shekhinah is not there. Which well, is an
3: interesting statement considering he hasn't been
0: there. <laughs> true, but if he says one thing he is certain of is that the shkina can't be there. And I same think with Galileo. Uh, I, with the, the language the... here is that when my nephew responded in kind, right, he's making that same sort of appeal to personal religious ethics. And you could all and the reason why I include that here is I think whether or not he's willing to admit it, I think he at least acknowledges that there's something weak about saying, Why do you do it? Because you feel God in this presence, when someone else can just as easily say, Well, it must be wrong because I don't. Right? It's a pretty presumptuous statement to make when you can say, Like, I feel God and therefore it's fine. Or I feel God and therefore that's why I'm here. Because then it's not even about well, it's really about your own emotions, and then you've got two people arguing about, well, I feel God this way, you feel God that way." And you have a nice little conflict. If anyone wants to read more of this, read uh, William James Varieties of Religious Experience, right? And then you have you know, a whole bunch of interesting discussions on that. Yeah.
5: Do you find it at all interesting that he contrasts his feeling Miishshio with ultra-orthodox.
0: No, his ultra-Orthodox was the description of his nephew.
5: I understand that. Yeah. So it, it, it's almost like he's making his nephew out to be the bad guy because he knows who his audience is.
0: I don't know, because ultra-Orthodox would be a way of describing it, or at least it can show the challenges that you have in terms of communities. Again, there's only so much I'm willing to read into what he writes without having textual evidence to base. Well, Kalisha goes out I the window. I have a comment to oh.
6: I, I know someone that came from a religious home a Hasidusha home and uh, he goes to a synagogue that's you know not orthodox and where there's a lot of seeing the same thing mm-hmm. and he said he feels the spirituality in that in that uh, yes. Yeah. That's, that's how he feels you know.
0: Okay. So let's hold off on this you know what let's take a little pause here without a question. Did anyone see the movie Keeping the Faith
6: mm-hmm.
0: <sighs> so, Wow. Ben Stiller well, one of the things that he had there was he brought in a gospel choir to sing En Kelohenu. Um I know. Well, actually, you know, Martin Luther King Day uh, in the Hebrew Institute of Riverdale, they have a gospel choir that comes in and sings Karlbach, which if you've never heard, you really should go at least once in your life to hear this done. It's a fantastic experience. Um, but they have a discussion about, like, you know, um, religious experience and all that. So I can throw out the following question. What happens if you feel the Shekhinah going to a Catholic church and taking communion.
5: Then convert to Catholicism. You
0: say convert to Catholicism, but if the primary driving factor for you is you feel the Shekhinah, and therefore certain things are okay, then it shouldn't matter how you feel the Shekhinah. You can apply that
3: to
0: anything. Exactly you can apply that to doing drugs of any sorts Why not and say that Jesus? well communion's a better example because like that's you know hardcore catholicism hardcore like you know, it, well in it, whatever <laughs> yes right or pick something else along those lines and saying that's how you feel it and therefore it is now justified cuz that's how you personally experience god that was kind of rhetorical mind you i'm not advocating that
5: Understood, but isn't there a difference? Okay, the guy who says I feel the shchina when I go fishing on Sunday morning.
0: Yep, that's a little different than. Again, when you're talking about systems, yeah. right? What makes one okay and the other not? If the control factor is feeling shina, well, then that ought to apply to any action, no matter what you do, right? The distinction How about you make
5: between with- painful.
0: There too. Or as uh, I, one of the rabbis in call I forgot who said it, people say, oh, God, more in the bedroom than they do in temple, <laughs> right? So people can take lots of things as a religious experience. There's a reason why the Kedeshah, right, in Hebrew, has that root of, like, there are reasons why that was used for. That, too, can be a religious experience, Right. Now, once you're saying this is okay, because, or not only this is okay, but this is an authentic religious experience and a valid one within the Jewish tradition, simply because you feel God's presence, well, then substitute X with anything else, and your formula still ought to work. All right, continue with uh, next paragraph with authority. Authority for most modern Jews
4: is simply a dead letter issue. Halacha is not rejected because modern enlightened Jews reject the theological premise that it was given by God. They never get to the point of asking questions about its origins, dismissing it long before such questions might arise because of the difficulty
0: of dining God? Divining. Divining God. Sorry. In the last that would be Catholicism. <laughs> right. Sorry. I'm sorry, it was breakfast. Yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you.
4: Uh, in, in the <laughs> lifestyle it seems to cultivate and obligate. Indifference to halacha most commonly derives from an inability of most Jews to find religious
0: values within the system. So he's talking about what is. He's describing what he considers to be a social fact amongst the Jewish community. What expl—what phenomenon explains uh, um, non-observance? And he says, because people have no connection to halakha, to their life, or spiritual thing, and he quotes a wonderful passage by Heschel. Continue. Truth must grow out of lived experience, not claims of truth based on
4: authority. The lived experience of the community must be the validation of their religious language. Okay. For those seeking an experiential encounter with the Jewish tradition to gain a sense of the tradition as it is lived, halacha should be engaged as an open-ended educational framework rather than a binding normative one. This approach should not be mistaken for a form of apologetics as it is based on an understanding of halakha's essential purpose, the cultivation of
0: individual and communal God consciousness. So here you've got that teleological thing that we spoke about last week. Halakha's point, the whole end result of halakha, is the cultivation of individual and communal God consciousness. Therefore, halakha ought to be open-ended enough to accommodate the individual or the communal's needs. Right? Right? So he's using a similar approach that Rabbi Weiss did that we saw last week, of saying, here's what I think the end result of Judaism ought to be, and therefore construct a halachic reality based on it. Whereas for Rabbi Weiss, it was one thing. For Hartman, it's about the individualism. Continue.
4: It is extremely important that we create a space within our theology and within our communities for the legitimate, though not exclusive, positive understanding of halacha as a selective educational system and not only as a legal system. For modern Jews to seek access to the lived experience of the Jewish community, it is not merely a tactical mistake to present halacha in terms of principles of authority, obligations, and the sinful consequences of failure to uphold all of the mitzvot. It is a failure of the religious imagination, and ultimately a failure of the Jewish community. The legalistic weight of halacha should be lifted completely and without theological compunction. Legalism and authoritarianism are not the best ways to educate a person to begin a way of life, and the overemphasis upon absolute authority, uh, claim, uh, absolute authoritarian claims, mm-hmm. and legalistic minutiae so prevalent among many Orthodox Jews today, belies halacha's essence and does a grave disservice to the profound potential it holds for today's diverse Jewish population. Halacha, derived from the Hebrew root that means walking, should be framed as a religious path, a process of ever-evolving spiritual sensitivity. Through tr- uh, though traditionally, halacha has predominantly been represented as a legal normative system requiring total commitment, we need not necessarily relate relate uh, to, it to it that way.
0: So here, almost wrapping it all up, conceding halacha isn't law. Not binding, don't even say it so much as an option, right? But don't treat it as something that is a hard, fast-set requirement that demands obedience. But based on everything that we said before, something that you are uh, supposed to be uh, engaged in, as he put the open-ended educational framework, almost take it as suggestions of forging a spiritual path by which you can connect to God or live with that God consciousness. Thoughts up until now?
2: I find this um, week's uh, discussion very applicable to myself. I told you about uh, what I was reading over Shabbat, and it started out by my questioning uh, my son, where did, where did the rabbis get authority for saying that uh, the world was created many times before? How did they know? Mm-hmm. The word beginning uh, means from the start. That's If there were worlds before, this wouldn't be the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so I... As an individual, having gone to college and studied sciences, I find myself very much challenged by some of the um, halacha or writings that I'm supposed to take.
0: There's a huge, huge difference between halacha and agada. The halacha are the things, like the dictates. Here's what you have to do, here's what you're not allowed to do. What you have with the midrashim... Are more homiletic teachings. And we teach those on Friday night. And one of the main points is, you, what are Hazal trying to teach you? Because you cannot take these, or at least all of them, at literal face value, because too many are mutually contradictory. So, and there are, you know, opinions around about that. So there's a huge difference, though, between having theological issues with some of the aggadic statements, and saying, I don't have to keep halacha because this offends my moral sensibility. Very big difference.
5: Why is discussion of this guy relevant to the halakhic process, when basically his whole thing is, do what you feel, the little stuff doesn't matter, the law doesn't I, matter, I will interpret it you, as you feel.
0: I will tell you why. For two reasons. One, as we sort of introduced earlier, it's a logical conclusion one can make. In that, if you start saying that, well, if any person can be a halachic authority, every person can be a rabbinic halachic authority, the whole system's going to shoot down. Two, there are rabbis, even Orthodox rabbis on the left, who will actually tout and focus on this sense of individualism as part of their halacha, or <coughs> whether, or, or, or to put it another way. They will be more. They may apply Rabbi Weiss's method, but focus more on the individualism of themselves and put much of themselves into the halakhic process by which they will impose on other people. It's a reason why you have to be somewhat careful when you have reliance on religious values, on moral intuition of pretty much anyone for this very reason. Because, and I'll explain more in the last section, yeah.
5: So, according to Hartman, if one goes to a rabbi for counsel, mm-hmm. Rabbi, what do I do in this situation? A rabbi could theoretically respond, well, what do you think you should do?
0: I guess. Well, the rabbi can serve as a moral guide to someone. But if the rabbi tells the person to do something that they find morally objectionable, they would say, well, I'm not going to do that because I just can't, regardless of what, whether or not that's what halacha dictates. Now, Dan mentioned earlier in the class, mentioned a certain idiom uh, that we find repeated in the Torah, and unfortunately for, well, we'll get there too, Um, unfortunately for proponents of this sort of individuation, and moral individuation and individualism, this is flat out rejected by the Torah on multiple occasions. I will run through a bunch of these. First. Uh, exodus fifteen twenty six god says if you listen to the voice of god and you do what is pay attention to his commandments and you do what is well, you do what is right in his eyes and you do and keep all of the commandments deuteronomy six eighteen you do what is right and good in the eyes of god so that you can inherit the land that God gave to you. Devarim, Deuteronomy 1228. Keep all of these things that I have commanded to you, Right, that, so that things will be good for you and your kids afterwards. Why? You do what is right and what is proper and just in the eyes of God. And finally, in, uh, or I should say, in additionally, uh, Tvarim 13, Deuteronomy 13, 19, Again, obey the Lord your God by keeping all the commandments I'm giving you today, doing what is right in His eyes. In contrast... In Devarim Deuteronomy 12.8, Do not do what we do today, where everyone does. People do what they think is right in their eyes. I also included the passage that I referred to many times in Shul, but I'm not sure if you all believe me, from the end of the book of Judges, a narrative called Pelegash Begiva. Uh, it, the picked up part that I have quoted here in the middle of Judges 19 involves a, uh, someone going to someone's house with his Pelegesh. Brigands come out and say, bring out the man who came to your house so that we can have sex with him. The owner said, no, don't be so vile since it's my guest. Don't do this outrageous things. Look, here's my daughter and his concubine. I'll bring them to you. Does this ring a bell with anyone? um, Come on. love. Love. There you go. In the land of stone. Wind up, they raping the poor woman to death. The guy dismembers her body into pieces, and mails her dismembered corpse across the land. Starts a civil war with a tribe of Benjamin that nearly wiped them out. And the last line is: ain isha In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what is right in their own eyes. There's another source I'll add that I didn't put on the sheet here of moral convictions going against God's will in the case of King Saul. What cost him the kingdom? Anyone remember? He got a commandment by the prophet Samuel, Shmuel, to wipe out all of Abalek, including you know, all men, women, and children and cattle. What did the people do? They spared people out of some weird sense of mercy and offered sacrifices with the animals. At which point, Shmuel said, did God ask you to do any of this? No, and that cost him the kingship. The reason why all this is important is there is no Hebrew term in the Bible, for morals or ethics. Not in the Bible. doesn't exist. God doesn't speak in terms of morals or ethics. God speaks in terms of commandments. The closest you have is toviashar. What is good, what is right, what is proper, however you want to describe that. But we are told multiple times, what we're supposed to do isn't what's right and proper in our eyes, but what is right and proper in God's eyes. What is right and proper in God's eyes? The mitzvot that he tells you to do, right? Or to give one example from the rabbinic period, and this is an example of a Tana, right? So the earlier generation that elsewhere Hartman wanted to say represented this more progressive thinking is the opinion uh, attributed to Rabban Gamliel, the son of Rabbi Yehudah HaNasi, recorded in Mishnah Avot 2.4, do his will as if it were your will, so that his he may do your will as if it was his will. And the flip side, You should negate your will, in favor of his will, So that others' intentions or will should be negated in front of yours. This is the exact subjugation that I, I would guess he was referring to when he was citing Rav Soloveitchik. But it seems to be pretty well reinforced throughout a whole lot of explicit biblical verses in at least one rabbinic text. You have another case uh, that I didn't include here because it was kind of off topic of Rav Shimon ben Shattah. Anyone the story of him with you, uh, in the Yerushalmi and Sanhedrin about um, the witches and his son? Okay, short, super short version. Um, people uh people testified against his son that he was engaged in witchcraft. and after the due process had no choice, the son was found guilty and wanted to overturn it felt really bad and the son effectively said, you know, if you want people to listen to you like I should be you know sort of the foundation. meaning this was a case where the ethical um desire to say either overturn or you felt it was somehow unjust, was sort of negated in order to maintain the integrity of the due process of here's how halacha is supposed to work. It's important also to conclude on this note in terms of the original sources is at the end of the day, it still has to be about God. And if you're going to take the Bible seriously as a covenant of things that we're supposed to do what God says, well, God tells you a whole lot of things of what to do, including listen to God. God as opposed to listen to your own moral convictions, such that when there is a conflict, you're supposed to listen to God. And I think there's an important room to make a distinction here. Whether or not people act out of their conscience or not, as opposed to following, you know, strict Torah, is different than saying it's okay to do that. We discussed once in Shul about an Averilishma, someone who does a sin for the sake of heaven. But it's still called an Averat, still called a sin. And I think it's important to distinguish between what does law, halacha, mandate, versus how God is going to punish you, if God is going to punish you. Meaning, if you're talking about a court and a beit din, they have their due process, they'll do whatever. Today, we don't really have a beit din to mete out religious punishments. Okay, unless you live up north and you don't give, you know, your wife again, and then you get beaten up. But aside from that, we don't really do that today. There's a very big difference between saying, I'm not going to do something and God has to be okay with it versus I'm not going to do something and I'm going to be okay with it and God's going to judge me however God's going to judge me. And that's a very important distinction to make in terms of the halachic process. What Hartman does is justifies, as a core part of of halacha, is people can effectively do what they see fit. That's flat out rejected. Do people do what they see fit at the end of the day? Absolutely. But there's a difference between saying I'm doing what I want and I'll take the licks whatever that's going to be and I'll put myself up to divine judgment. And there too, you can either focus on God as this, you know, mean vindictive God who's going to punish you for everything or God as a merciful God who'll take into account mitigating circumstances. Not being God, I'm not going to and not being an agent of God, I'm not going to speak for God. But there's a very big difference between that approach to following your conscience and following your ethic and saying, well, God has to be okay with it because this is the way God made me. You could almost understand that intuitively because then the entire society breaks down, but it's also explicitly rejected in the Torah itself on too many occasions for people to just blithely ignore. Well, people do it anyway. Are you
1: saying Hartman is ignoring this last part? Yes, right? yes. You're saying he's he. that's what he's doing. Yes. Now, what does Rabbi Yudah feel about that? think
0: about that. That he ignores it? Yeah. Uh, It's something that is unfortunately not uncommon. Uh, We saw a little bit more of that last week and something that Dan mentioned at the very beginning. A lot of um, people selectively cite sources. For people who try to come up with grand theories of Judaism, it tends to be based on one or two sources to the exclusion of everything that contradicts it. We saw some examples of Rabbi Avi Weiss doing that too in particular saying, we follow the tradition of Rav Cook, except for the parts that you don't like. Here, he's quoting a particular, he says, he's basing it entirely on, or not entirely, the primary foundation paradigm is Abraham's argument with God, but ignoring everything else. It's a blind spot that people have. And I think everyone has that blind spot. The question is, what do you do with it when confronted with things that conflict? Hartman, though, already admitted that when you come across a text that conflicts your moral sensibility, you reinterpret that text to fit your moral sensibility, as opposed to using conflicting texts to maybe refine a better, more nuanced halachic sensitivity. Right? The grand theories is, I think, where people get in trouble. When you say, this is the core thing of Judaism, but what about all these other things in the Torah that don't fit? Eh, we'll reinterpret it to make it fit. But then you're not really following God as much as following either yourself or what you think God really meant, both of which are incredibly presumptuous. So do I like that he selectively cited? No, I never met him. It's not my place to judge good person, bad person. What I can do is evaluate what are the merits of his argument? To what extent does this fit within the Torah? And if even with the covenantal side of things, I don't think he's entirely correct. Uh, there's a wonderful book on covenant that I gave a class on here, and I think Jacob Hartz did too, uh, on one Shavuot, uh, by Delbert Hillers on covenant in the literary form. In the biblical times he writes that a covenant was done between a higher power and a lower power. It wasn't always an equal partnership. And the covenant that you have with us and God is do what God says or God is going to zap you for not doing what God says. That's pretty explicit. So what he seems to do is say, well, we have this idea of a covenant, I will extrapolate my own theories of what I think a covenant ought to be as opposed to actually reading the terms of the contract that we have in the Bible. So I don't even think he has a proper understanding of the biblical covenant as much as he'd like to say, oh, this is a covenant it's between two parties. Like no, the covenant is we do what God says and God doesn't smite us if we, you know, don't and God will actually make our lives better. And there are a whole bunch of covenants in the Bible, too. Um, you know, we've got one, and we actually gave, uh, it was we actually gave a series on that, if I recall, of confronting chosenness and, like, the whole yeah, different yeah, types yeah. of, like, Noah's covenant and remembers that. That's okay if you don't.
3: Well, and also covenant structure in, in the Torah takes, uh, has a lot of similarities with covenant structure between, like, I guess government bodies in the
0: ancient Near East. Yeah, and it's usually, that's what Hillers points out. And it's usually the person in charge, like there's this whole preamble of like, here's what got us to this point. Here's why we have to do this. And here are what all the terms are. But it's usually a lot more one-sided than Hartman wants to admit. So I happen to think his analogy doesn't work. But even if you accept like the analogy, you look at the terms of this covenant, not how he's describing it, right? Right. So the reason why I think it's important to mention this here is, again, when talking about the Lachic process, for people who want to talk about individuation or about finding your own way, there is room, but it's not a matter of, Isha yashar navi aset. That doesn't end well for the Jewish people. People did what is right in their own eyes. That's how the book of Judges ends. After the whole narrative of the Pelegish Begiva, the concubine who was raped to death and her uh, dismembered corpse was mailed across the country en route to a civil war. All right? That's not a matter of just people doing what they want. It's ish yeshar be'enav. You have people who thought they were doing what was the right thing. People do a lot of evil, thinking they're doing the right thing, and it's a huge problem when you're dealing with subjective morality. Yeah.
4: Well, I have two comments. First of all, uh, I, I think you know modern society allows for individual freedom, but we still have to distinguish between sanity and insanity. And the plegish begivah was simply insanity. It wasn't freedom. Second thing is, your description of the covenant, another word for covenant would be slavery.
0: Well, in theory, the Jew- well, you can argue about Jewish people, could they have said no, and that whole holding upon them the mountain like a barrel type thing, if they really had free will. But there were multiple covenants, too. You had a covenant before they entered the land of Israel that the Torah says explicitly was distinct from the one that was done at Hore. You had Joshua at the end of the book of Joshua, uh, chapter 24, makes another covenant with the Jewish people right when he was about to die, when there really wasn't. Force behind it. Really, it's not the same as people want to assume that there was at Har Sinai.
4: But your description of of the covenant with God sounds a lot like slavery.
0: I'm not sure it would be slavery because he still had to enter into it. Just face the concept. I would really recommend picking up the book Covenant by Delbert Hillers because he does a much better job of explaining it than I'm doing. I I
1: don't want. I'm sorry. I don't want this gentleman's point to be. I don't want you right now. Yes. With. Great respect to have the last word yes. regarding that, because I think if slavery isn't the right word, something close to su- I say immediately. You would argue. Let me finish. Sorry. Please. Submission. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's uh, repulsive authoritarianism. It's my way or tough, and I think that immediately strikes me. As of the case,
0: mm-hmm. so the Gemara does discuss that very thing. That's what I mentioned. The analogy that's given in the Gemara is God hung Har Sinai over the Jewish people like a barrel, and they said, "You know, either you accept the Torah, if you don't, this place is going to be your grave." Then it discusses that the Jewish people reaccepted the Torah voluntarily in the times of Esther and Mordechai. It's a fantastic question, and it's not one that I can answer responsibly in a short time. I gave a sub-series on that called uh, Confronting Chosenness. We went through the different covenants and discussed all of those in greater detail. Yes?
5: Okay, the top paragraph on page four about authority for most modern Jews is simply a dead-letter issue. Yep. Don't you think that paragraph could just as easily have been in an article in the OU magazine as kind of a problem with a, with a solution later that our leadership has to step up and do something about that?
0: Okay, so, I mean... I don't know. I don't. I don't write for the OU. I doubt they would but, ever publish know. me. Um, but look, I, the reason why I included the sociological pieces at the very beginning, yeah. I think, shows at least a certain groundwork where it could a way of interpreting Hartman is this is how people are functioning, mm-hmm. right, descriptively, and he could have an accurate description. The question is, what do you do with it, right? So it could be in his mind, we need to change a bit, or at least change our understanding of the religion to make it more relevant to people, right? I mean, it seems weird to like call this hetzer kiruv as like a weird way of like reforming Judaism as an outreach method to keep get people more engaged, right? Engaged in what? But the way he's done it, as I introduced, is he's taking this phenomena of individual secularization and instead of treating it as secularization, turning that into a religious ideal, Or at least allowing room for that to be a religious ideal, where instead of just saying, well, you're going to do what you want, now we're breaking down the communal authority, saying, wait, this was really part and parcel of the Jewish system from time immemorial. Now we're just somehow uncovering this and seeing how we should really apply it. Again, it's not an argument to which I subscribe, and it's one that is, I think, contradicted far too often by the Bible and other pieces in rabbinic literature to have sustained value. It's something that works if you quote certain sources, hold them up as exemplifying what Judaism really represents and ignoring every single source to the contrary. Granted, and I've said this before, in that respect he's no different than a lot of other people who do the exact same thing. But you can debunk the arguments the same way that we debunk the arguments for others. right? So there is going to be an intrinsic problem, leaving it up to every single person to decide what is moral and what is proper in their own eyes, especially when it gets to a point of this, my sense of morality conflicts with halacha. Therefore, I need to reinterpret the halacha to fall in line with my sense of morality. And that's a problem whether or not individuals do it, and I'd also say it's a problem when rabbis do it. And if not, I mean, you can argue from the global system, you can say, well, rabbis are different. Rabbis have a right to do it. Rabbis somehow have a greater or better intuition to do it. Really?
5: Well, lawyers have a better understanding of the law than their clients, usually.
0: And would you say lawyers are moral? Or have a reputation for being the most moral members in our society? No. Really? No, no. You're a comedian. Oh, on. No, 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 you no, no. do stand-up. The fact not, that you don't have lawyer jokes coming up the wise- We're you're
5: not talking <laughs> about lawyers as moral or ethical people. We're talking about working the system.
0: Right. You're talking about working the system. So whoever... You will have those say, The halacha must be this. Because I need it to work out that way. Because this is what my into, moral intuition tells me.
5: Yeah.
0: Right? You start extrapolating that to everyone else, you've got a disaster. So some will say, well, only certain people do. And then you get back to the questions of Dustor that we had before. But you really need to hammer home. I, I cannot stress this enough. Just purely relying on your moral intuition as the determinant of what halacha is or going to be. Or how you apply halacha is going to be dangerous.
2: The dilute yeah. What? It's going to uh, dilute what we know as Judaism.
0: Yes, that's pretty much what Luckman said in our first source here. So that concludes today, and next week we will do a nice summation of all of the classes and hopefully put all of this stuff together and see something out of this. <laughs>